Welcome to This Human Business, a podcast representing the movement to reform business culture, moving it away from its obsession with digital efficiency to find new ways of working. Conventional business writing has a tendency to engage in what, in last week's episode, anthropologist Yulia Grinberg referred to as entrepreneurial bluster. The pretense that business executives and the organizations that they lead are exemplars of both economic success and social progress. There's a whole lot of happy talk from businesses these days, and if you believed everything that you heard from speakers on the conference circuit, you'd think that business is at the forefront of an idealistic revolution that's ushering in a new golden age of digitally powered human flourishing. If you have the courage to peek beneath that golden veneer, however, you'll quickly see that there's little substance to give it shape. This year, I'm beginning this podcast with a number of critical episodes, confronting the pervasive problems that are making it difficult for authentically human businesses to take root. It's not easy listening, but if we're serious about making business more human and not just using human business as a new catchphrase to put a pretty face on abusive business practices, then we have to pay attention to these issues. Next week, the podcast will explore some more positive territory, but this episode confronts a problem that gets to the heart of what has gone wrong under the domination of digital commerce. This week's episode is dedicated to the escalating crisis of racism in business. When I refer to racism in business, what exactly am I talking about? There are different kinds of racism, and the classic, blatant kind of racial discrimination is one of them. Yes, there are still plenty of people in business who use racist slurs, and hire, fire, and promote people on the basis of ethnic identity, It's horrible that we still need to devote resources to confront this kind of racism, but we do. With the digital transformation of business, however, a new kind of racism, digital racism, has developed. This is the kind of racism that this episode will be discussing. Because it's something that we're just becoming aware of. Something that neither business culture nor society in general has figured out ways to deal with. The special challenge with digital racism is that, as with too many digital problems, the processes that foster and protect it are hidden from the view, not just of outsiders, but of tech insiders as well. As automated machine learning routines become more pervasive, it becomes increasingly difficult even for the people who craft the algorithms of artificial intelligence to pinpoint exactly where the problem is coming from. There have always been mechanisms of racism that are hidden from general view, but digital racism is systemic racism on steroids. Jordan Wright, senior designer at LPK, explained to me that when we're talking about racism in the new digital culture of business, we need to keep individual 
and collective responsibility simultaneously in focus? I think a lot of it is really subconscious and a lot of people don't like to face the fact that they have a little bit of bias, even if it's just a little bit, everyone does. And when companies on that <laughs> scale do it, it's, it's easy to be like, oh my gosh, point out, we can throw stones at them all day, but then it kind of, it needs to trickle back down to that single person who like we have to check ourselves if that makes sense so like i think it it takes a lot of people to get to that big underlying uh systemic like racism in a company like oracle or google like it didn't it wasn't just one person if that makes sense so i like to look at it as if we kind of bring the story back down to an individual level, we'll see how it got so big. Because one person didn't just push that up the pipeline. It was, a, it was like a group of people who had that same kind of mindset. It's a new kind of problem we confront when we're discussing digital racism because we face a twofold blindness. First, we have to overcome the social blindness to racism that's been an obstacle for a long time. Second, we have to overcome the blindness to problems in digital manifestations of our culture that's developed over the last three decades. Chuck Welch of Rupture Studios identifies the way that one form of this second blindness, the presumption that digital technology is objective and therefore lacks bias, contributes to the development of digital racism in business. Yeah, humans are humans, man. So uh, there's always been uh, tribalism, right? <laughs> Since the recorded time, right? Whether, whether it was religion or whether it was, you know, certain races or certain genders, there's tribalism in, in everybody. I think people think algorithms or technology is, is unbiased. And that's a fallacy. It's just like saying data is unbiased. If I'm a coder or a software developer, I bring my bias right into the development of my software. Or if I'm a data analyst or a data wonk, the way I develop a study is biased. The way I interpret that data is biased. Chuck brings up a troubling point. Racism isn't a technological problem at its heart. It's a human problem. The problem with digital racism is that it amplifies human racism to a new scale that is mind-boggling in its vastness, beyond the ability of any single person to imagine, much less to confront. When we add on to this multiplication of racism, the habitual blindness to the problems created through digital transformation, we face a crisis of institutional racism beyond anything we've ever dealt with before. Chuck is well aware of the history of racism in business, which he has been confronting 
for decades. You know, I've worked in advertising for many, many years. And I remember first coming to New York in what, 98, and Jesse Jackson had a, a it's called the Rainbow Push Coalition Partnership. It was like down on Wall Street and I went and they were talking about diversity and inclusion. It's the exact same conversation 20 years later, man. And I, I don't know, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see much change. There's, there's a lot of push for women uh, and rightfully so, uh, but they're kind of skipping over uh, the ethnic conversation and, and I don't hear it much. Black people who look like me and other, other men of color, man, they're not sitting at the seats in, in the boardroom. Uh, they're outside of it. So we often make these kind of black and white arguments, uh, no pun intended, but the picture is much more nuanced when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and, and who has power and who doesn't, because that's ultimately what it comes down to. Who has the power to make decisions and create change? The client snaps his finger and says, look, man, we want to see uh, an equal representation of, the, of, of, our, of our core customers in your agencies. Things will happen overnight. When a client snaps their fingers, you jump when you're in the agency world. So I think clients need to put more pressure on these agencies. It would be a mistake to indulge in the habit of presuming that a solution to racism in business, like all other challenges, can be found just by engineering a digital solution. The ugly truth is that racism, like many other problems in business, is allowed to spread because of the apathy of business leaders who have failed to identify the relevance of human problems to the bottom line of profitability. Chuck is right that many instances of racism in business could be dealt with if business leaders cared enough to stand up and demand action. Twain Liu, however, points out that there's an even deeper structure of racism running through the digital skeleton of today's business culture. A habitual bias that comes out of the binary forms of thinking that business orthodoxy demands. The binary system originated, uh, you know, with um, Aristotle. So in his dualist logic paradigm, he makes quite a distinction between essentially, you know, what is true and what is false, what is valid and what is good and, you know, versus what is bad and what is male and what is female and what is essentially somebody like him who has a, an elite position within, you know, the political forums versus somebody who is not like him, who is female and a slave. However, what Aristotle did was then he took that neutral, objective, scientific comparison between, between opposites, and he actually used that to frame social relationships and to frame as the basis of what I consider to be his form of social engineering. Mm -hmm. And so slaves to him were essentially just people who were, who had been conquered and then were under the dominion of, you know, the conquerors. And so he also allocated them as zero as being, you know, almost non-human in, in a sense. So that was a very elitist basis upon which you know, he constructed his, 
his logic, essentially, his binary logic. Twain shows us how the very structure of binary logic supports racist ideology, with its absolute division between ones and zeros, between white and black, between acceptance and rejection, between master and slave. This link between binary thinking and racism has a deep history in our language, beginning with the word binary, spreading into the term divide, meaning to split into two, discrimination, meaning to sort out those who are to be welcomed from those who are to be cast off in society. And finally, the word device, the word for a tool that organizes the world by dividing things into two, according to binary logic. Mark Lehman, Chief Technology Officer of Global Citizen, explains that the consequences of this deeply divisive world of binary data impacts our individual identity. When our data is used to automatically place us into categories that define who we are, the results may be useful for businesses, but restrictive for us as individuals. I think people are becoming a lot more aware of the value of themselves as individual and the way that translates into a digital world. Their data, your data actually is you. And even if a person doesn't think so, your chromosomal strand is data. That's obviously you. But the whole thing about your personality, your likes, your dislikes, the way you propagate your mental and heart force in the world is another, just another form of data. That's, that's precious because it's, it's you and it's me. They don't want to just manipulate you as an individual, but they also want to manipulate your, your digital self. Professor Lauren Rue is an expert in information studies who researches the way that the manipulation of binary data by digital businesses creates new manifestations of institutional racism. So my name is Lauren Rue. I am currently a assistant professor of information systems and analytics at the Wake Forest School of Business. Um, by the time this comes out later in the summer, I will be an assistant professor at University of Maryland in the Smith School of Business. I'm transitioning universities at the end of this academic year. I have my PhD from NYU Stern School of Business in Information Systems. And how I came to this field is I was at Stanford for my undergrad in Management Science and Engineering. And I was there from 2000 to 2004, which was a pretty exciting time. It was just after the dot-com bubble burst. And there was a lot of talk about, of course, entrepreneurship was very big, but it was tempered with this question of, what next, right? We had all of these amazing web companies come out and these websites, and then it all went bust. So now what? And it was interesting. From there though, I decided I wanted to be a manager at a tech company, but I wanted to be back East. I'm originally from New Jersey and I've always loved New York City. I grew up about an hour away from there. 
So I came back home and I was looking for jobs and I ended up doing data analysis before big data became what it is today. Uh, back when I graduated, I said I wanted to analyze data for a living and people said, why would you want to do that? That's so boring, <laughs> which is incredible now. Um, so I worked in consumer analytics for an online advertising agency. And what struck me was how they took data and they could come up with these really interesting strategic insights. And with my background, my undergrad degree, it was, um, as I said before, an engineering degree. I wasn't able to answer the questions in as much depth. I wanted to become an expert. And so I looked at various programs, uh, PhD programs, and said that information systems really has the most interesting questions. It's all about the business use of technology. And at that point, starting to get into data and big data. Professor Rue began her line of inquiry with a study of representation on Kickstarter. One of the biggest shifts is this idea that technology is not neutral. Anytime that you create any type of technology or you analyze data, you make choices and those choices can then influence the results that you get. And you may be doing this unintentionally. You may be doing the best analysis you think you are, you can do, but that choice has unintended consequences. I was working on a project related to Kickstarter and I was interested in asking these questions on bias. I think I mentioned before that the Luca and Edelman paper from Harvard Business School about bias in Airbnb was presented at an information systems conference in 2013. And that was exciting for me because my first thought is, oh, we can talk about these things now. I'm a black woman. I have noticed issues of bias in technology platforms, in business settings, but it was something that wasn't interesting. Um, it wasn't necessarily well received. And when that paper was presented, it was just so exciting for me. All I could think of is now we can talk about this and I want to be doing research in that. So I started to work on a paper about Kickstarter, which was looking at bias on the Kickstarter platform. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at founder pictures. And we had, I think, 100, 200,000 founder pictures. And it's just too many pictures to look at to manually go through and find the race of the people in them. I talked to a few colleagues and they told me that they use a facial recognition platform, Face++, to go through and categorize people by race. So I went through, I used that technology, I categorized people by race. And what was interesting about that is having worked with Face++ across a couple of different data sets, I did notice there's some systematic differences. In a nutshell, we found that the race of the founder is the bigger driver in uh, lower success on Kickstarter. We looked at the, rate, the race of the subject, the, the fundraiser, the race of the subjects in the campaign photo. Um, and then we also looked at the racial nature of the campaign description. So even though it might not be discussing race, some topics are more, more closely aligned with one race than another, something like, um, gospel music or hip hop or Atlanta are more, more closely aligned with African-Americans, anime, Japan are more closely aligned with Asians. And what we find is that even controlling for the topic and controlling for the campaign subject, the fundraiser photo 
if there is a African-American in the fundraiser photo, there is lower success on average. How does this kind of racial bias enter into a technology that isn't even conscious, much less motivated by a prejudice against African-Americans? Though tools such as digital information systems don't possess motivations themselves, their creators do. And the businesses that put digital services out into the world are culturally embedded. These systems are not as objective as we make them out to be. They are infused with subjectivity. Well, I think that this type of bias can enter into these types of technologies in a variety of ways. Um, one is, of course, the training set data. When these models are quote unquote learning, they're doing it based off of a data set of images. And there's been a lot of talk in the last few years, that these images need to be diverse because if every face that it learns is the face of, um, of someone who is from San Francisco, maybe in the tech industry, if it's all of Facebook's employees, let's say, that's a, a sample set that's 2% black, I believe. So you're going to have a machine that has learned, you know, again, in quotes, entirely on a very homogeneous corpus. And they're not gonna be able to recognize a different type of faces or different types of ways of being. So that's part of it. Um, another part has to do with labels. The machine doesn't know what's happier or unhappy. If you, how it quote unquote learns is you have a lot of pictures of people smiling and you say that's what happiness looks like. You have a lot of pictures of people not smiling and you go, this is what sadness looks like. Well, if there are any type of cultural differences or if some people perceive uh, someone who's black as, who, who's not smiling as uh, angry or afraid, then, then, then you're going to see the machine pick up on that exact same bias. And so the, in, in my particular study, I think that's where the ambiguity comes in, that I think there just needs to be more human oversight. Uh, and that's actually a paper I'm working on now is looking at this difference between subjective and objective measures. I'm looking at beauty, right? Because now there's an artificial intelligence program that is claiming to score beauty. Again, it's face plus plus. And beauty is inherently subjective. Uh, different people will like different things. And I'm looking not just at is the system biased, but then when people come in and make their decisions, and they know what the, what the facial recognition program says versus uh, people who don't know what the facial recognition says. How does that influence their choices? And what, what I'm finding so far is that for the objective measures, so age, I'm asking you to guess the, the beauty contestant's age, people can ignore facial recognition. If it's inaccurate, people can ignore it. If it's for a subjective measure like beauty, what, we're what I'm finding is that people become more biased because the facial recognition is actually more biased than the people who are, by bias, I mean there's a higher disparity between darker skin and lighter skin beauty contestants for facial recognition than there are for, for people. Professor Rue has identified a host of terrible ironies. Digital objects are working to redefine our subjective human experiences. Emotionless computers are claiming 
the measure of our feelings, in the pursuit of the metrics of beauty, artificial intelligence is implementing ugly, racist attitudes. I feel like we need to think very deeply about when we use these types of subjective measures because there's no right or wrong answer. And we need to have people more closely aligned with it, not only the development of the technology, but when it's used and coming up with some type of mechanism to convey that, again, this is just another, another tool, so to speak. This can help guide people's decisions, but sometimes it's inappropriate for facial recognition or for any artificial intelligence to be the one making the decision. So how can we get them to be more closely aligned? I think right now over the past few years, we've seen this push into artificial intelligence are gonna make all of these decisions and they're gonna revolutionize business. But at the end of the day, there still needs to be someone to manage it, right? Someone needs to actually use this as only an input and make the final decision and be able to be accountable for it. Much of the racism that inhabits digital technologies is a consequence of the overreach of Silicon Valley. In the rush to profit from the novelty of technological gadgetry, businesses are trying to sell digital versions of every product and service imaginable, even when the tool doesn't fit the job to be done. When businesses use machines to objectify human subjectivity, they reduce us down to the status of objects that can be bought, sold, and controlled. The mentality that motivates digital businesses to claim ownership of human data is frighteningly similar to the ideology that justified slavery, the ownership of human beings. The racism that's being implemented under the mantle of digital transformation is too vast for any single person to study. When I spoke to anthropologist Yulia Grinberg recently, she directed me to the research of Sophia Noble. Another work by Sophia Noble um, called Algorithms uh, of Oppression. And these, uh, this latter book talks about how Google creates and encodes these kinds of racialized biases into uh, its information systems. That's not to say that these, um, the programming of inequality into information systems is always necessarily nefarious. Oftentimes, uh, it's, I wouldn't say necessarily comes from a, a place of decency, but of, of, of a place of um, perhaps some kind of ignorance of the way in which certain kinds of systems replicate existing racial biases that are already that's around us in the, in the real world. When uh, a woman of color is searching for, you know, doing a Google search for uh, certain kinds of terms online, certain, uh, like specific kinds of images come up that correlate with racialized bodies that are not necessarily pleasant or positive or even uh, acceptable for people to experience. But that, that's one of the ways in way that race becomes, or at least I, I'd say racial biases become encoded online. People tend to think of Google as a wonderful resource of information, but Google's dominance in the realm of online search cuts us off from much more information than it reveals. Often, the information Google makes available to us has an appalling racial bias to it, 
as when Sophia Noble discovered that Google's search engine presumes that women of color exist primarily as objects of sexual fetish, auto-completing searches with degrading results. One instance of this kind of digital racism might be dismissed as just a glitch, but the pattern is much bigger than that. In January this year, the MIT Media Lab discovered that recognition, the facial scanning technology developed by Amazon, mistakenly categorizes one-third of dark-skinned women as men. The Human Interface Technology Laboratory in New Zealand observed that robots with artificial intelligence are being designed with white skin to resemble people of European ancestry under the racist presumption that a European appearance will make the bots feel more acceptable to human beings. Google's facial recognition system infamously categorized African Americans as gorillas. And this summer, it was revealed that racism is so thickly encoded in digital frameworks that a Google project to reduce racist speech on its platforms actually ended up categorizing and censoring African-American texts as more offensive than messages from European-Americans. Affectiva, the emotion AI company founded by Reina El Kaliubi, is now purposefully coding racist stereotypes into its emotion AI algorithms, claiming that these stereotypes are an effort to improve its infamously inaccurate assessment of people's emotional states. In a bitter twist, Affectiva's racist system of organizing human emotion into ethnic categories undermines the validity of the very psychological theory it uses to justify its technology. The theory of basic emotions and Affectiva's coding framework that has been developed from it relies upon the premise that everyone everywhere on earth exhibits emotion in the very same predictable way. Once Affectiva shifted to the idea that there are distinct racial modes of emotional expression, it abandoned the theory of basic emotions and the validity of its artificial intelligence system. What can be done about the pervasive racism encoded in the artificial intelligence systems developed by digital businesses? Professor Rue has a few suggestions. Well, I would like to see more federal regulation and oversight for these technologies. I think Microsoft is doing a wonderful job right now calling for federal regulation because when it comes to privacy, your face and your image is unique in terms of data that can be collected and gathered. And there's been an explosion of facial recognition um, and video analysis. So I'd like to see it proceed with some regulation to make sure that it's being ethically deployed to make sure that there is testing um, for these commercially available software programs to mitigate or reduce bias. I don't think it's possible to completely reduce bias. Very often you don't figure out that something is biased until there's some um, extreme example 
or some unexpected case, and then you realize, oh no, there's systematic bias in the system, in these technologies. And I think that in our excitement over adopting these particular types of technologies, we can't lose sight of the human element. There is somebody who is going to be deploying the model, who's going to be um, interpreting the results, who's going to be acting upon it. And because of that, we need to be very thoughtful about what is conveyed, how the data are trained, and how we can communicate that in the best way possible. I do think that there is a natural limit to what artificial intelligence can do, and we're not talking about that limit because everyone's so excited that the technology itself is being moved forward. Just like any new technology, it makes sense for businesses to adopt them when they get to a certain point. I think you're not gonna see the productivity gains right away. Um, and I think in the meantime, what they may find is they just don't live up to expectations. Or there could be some type of illegal liability. So it's something else I was looking at are some of the legal implications of this bias. So if you're using it for hiring and it, it seems to systematically not like female candidates, then that could be a problem. And I think it would take a couple of lawsuits or, or personal relations disasters. But so I think that's more of the risk than anything else. But that's, again, for just generic business, not for anything that's mission critical like threat detection. But Apple had to deal with this in their stores recently. They have video surveillance and there was uh, an inaccuracy in it and their video surveillance popped up that one of their customers was wanted on an arrest warrant and the police went to his house. And Apple then was sued because this was an African-American and he said that he thinks that their facial recognition was biased and that's why he was targeted, inaccurately targeted as somebody with an outstanding arrest warrant. We keep on hearing that artificial intelligence boosts productivity and efficiency. But the racism that keeps on manifesting in machine learning systems should remind us to ask who is benefiting from the new productivity and efficiency, and at whose expense. It shouldn't be surprising that Silicon Valley, an industry that makes riches for a small elite by assigning people into categories and then targeting them for commercial exploitation, develops technology thick with racial bias. How can we overcome racism when the very economic and social systems that we're working in encourage the construction of businesses that are designed as engines of inequality? It's necessary if we are to reduce racism in business to aim for a larger reform of business culture, to dismantle the underlying framework that enables racism to become automatically encoded in business technologies. This new vision must move us away from Silicon Valley's greedy obsession with the categorization of human beings. We have to go beyond the value of initial external appearances and learn to respect the diversity of individual journeys and the potential for transformations of character. With this in mind, next week's episode will begin an arc back up toward a positive vision for business culture, 
through one that still resides in the mysterious background. The topic of next week's episode of This Human Business will be the poetry and fairy tales of business. We need new metaphors and storylines to build a new kind of business. Thank you to the people who helped me to put this episode of This Human Business together. And thank you for listening. The music that opens and closes each episode is from Maidan. The song is called Underwater, and it's from the album For Creators. Creators.